Hello, and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. I'm Ryan Holstead. And I'm Ryan Quinn. And today we're going to wrap up our discussion on GI malignancies with anal squamous cell carcinoma. Um, we'll be discussing both localized and metastatic disease. For those of you who are interested in hepatocellular carcinoma and neuroendocrine tumors, we'll be discussing those during one of our later discussions. Yep, next we'll be heading into the world of breast cancer, so we should have some exciting talks. So anal cancer isn't that common. Um, It it accounts for about 2.5% of all GI cancers. One of the main risk factors is a history of HIV infection. So you should test anyone with a newly diagnosed anal cancer for HIV. It can also be associated with HPV infection, specifically strains 16 and 18. So it'll be interesting to see if the incidence decreases with the HPV vaccine. Now, although associated with HIV, anal squamous cell carcinoma is not an HIV AIDS-defining malignancy. A high-yield factor are the three AIDS-defining malignancies, which include Kaposi's sarcoma, cervical cancer, and uh, an aggressive non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The distinction is that patients with adequate CD4 and 8 counts can still get anal squamous cell carcinoma. So there's some thought that this may be more primarily an HPV-driven malignancy, with, which just happens to coexist with HIV infections, although there hasn't been any definitive evidence one way or the other. The other non-AIDS-defining malignancies that are uh, frequently associated with HIV, HIV include lung cancer, head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, Hodgkin's lymphoma, and testicular cancer. So these cancers typically arise distal to the dentate line, unlike the rectal cancers that we discussed previously. That being said, there is a gradient, and it's possible to have adenocarcinomas arise distal to the dentate line and squamous cell carcinomas arising proximal to this. For the sake of today's discussion, we're going to be talking about distal squamous cell carcinomas, which are the prototypical anal cell cancer. Anal adenocarcinoma, while being very rare, is typically treated like similar, more similar to rectal cancer, and vice versa. Rectal squamous cell carcinoma is treated similarly to anal cancer. But again, this does not come up very frequently. In terms of how patients present with this, typical things that we see are rectal bleeding, discomfort. Some patients complain of itching or discharge, change in bowel habits. Often these are going to be presenting due to you know frank GI bleeding or pain. This is going to lead to the patient seeing either the primary care doctor or being referred directly to a proctologist. There, they'll ultimately have direct visualization and biopsies with endoscopy will confirm the diagnosis. Once the diagnosis is confirmed, further workup is going to include staging imaging using a CT chest, abdomen, or pelvis. They also consider using PET-guided imaging. If not previously screened, all these patients should be screened for HIV, as we've previously discussed. Further workup should also include, in women, a pelvic exam to A, assess for other HPV-related malignancies, as well as B, um, assess to see whether or not there's any direct extension of the local tumor into the vagina. High-resolution MRI of the pelvis can also help further characterize the extent of your primary lesion, as well as regional lymph nodes. As with most other cancers that we've discussed, the staging system is the TNM staging system, with T being the size of the lesion or invasion into nearby organs, such as the bladder, prostate, vagina, or urethra. N is lymph node, local lymph node metastasis, including the internal iliac nodes, the perirectal nodes, and inguinal lymph nodes, and M being distant metastasis. I think that point you made where we're talking about the size of the lesion um, is a bit of a distinction from our other colon-related 
related malignancies where usually we're talking about the depth of invasion. So to keep in mind, a larger tumor in anal cell cancer does define a higher T stage. There can also be squamous cell carcinomas of the skin right next to the anal canal. These are probably one of the only ones that are treated with just local excision alone. But you have to be very sure that you're um, able to visualize the entire lesion um, just in the skin next to the anal canal. These are referred to as anal margin lesions. Historically, the management of these tumors was surgical resection, as with most of our GI malignancies. And as with our lower rectal cancers, if you recall, resection of these tumors is very complicated and was in fact done with an APR. And this would certainly require a colostomy. Unfortunately, even with surgery alone, rates of recurrences were very high, exceeding 50%. And this led to the interest of increasing localized management with radiation. And then ultimately the landmark Wayne State Protocol or Niagara Protocol was published in 1978. Adaptations of this regimen are what we continue to use today, which is somewhat unique in medical oncology to be continue to use a treatment 40 years down the road. Yeah, so this protocol used um, chemo, chemo radiation with 5-FU, 1,000 milligrams per meter squared on days 1 through 4, as well as days 29 to 32. And it also involved mitomycin C. In this protocol, it used 10 to 15 milligrams per meter squared on day 1, although this has been adapted. Now many centers use mitomycin on day 1 and day 29. This was in combination with pelvic radiation, 30 gray over about 6 weeks. The original publication was a small case series of just three patients. However, they all achieved pathologic complete response, and none of these patients required surgery, which was a big big, uh, game changer because previously these patients would all require permanent ostomy placement. This was the Dostarlamab trial of its time. Now, this is our first time discussing mitomycin C, and this is actually a chemotherapy we won't discuss very often. It's an alkylating agent, specifically a crosslinker of CBG islands. This is not a radiosensitizer medication, so it's, it remains a bit of a medical mystery why this is so effective in the anal cancer protocols. Um, the drug was is actually from a fungus originally, a streptomyces species, and toxicities of this are, are many-fold. It's not an easy medication to give and can cause mild suppression, nausea, vomiting, rash, pulmonary toxicity, radiation recall, dermatitis, as well as hemolytic uremic syndrome and alopecia. As a high-yield fact, along with this medication, gemcitabine is one of the other medications we've discussed with the risk of hemolytic uremic syndrome. Now, although this is not a radiosensitizing agent, and for the sake of time, we won't go into the individual trials, but there have been attempts to substitute mitomycin C for more classical radiosensitizing agents such as paclitaxel, cisplatin, or just taking out mitomycin C altogether. And all of these regimens have been inferior to um, Dr. Nigro's protocol. One practical thing to note about using mitomycin is that it does require placement of a port or a pick line because it can be very irritating to the veins. Something I learned today in clinic when the nurses refused to give it via peripheral IV. So after the original case series was published, there was a study looking at, you know, do we really need the chemotherapy and radiation, or can we get away with just radiation alone? This was originally studied in a European, or in a British study called the ACT-1 trial, ACT standing for anal cancer trial. And this study included about 580 patients. It was a phase three trial. 
It included patients with T1 to T4 lesions and N0 to N3, so patients with both early and more advanced cancers. And the goal of this study was to see if we can improve local control with the NIGRO protocol using 5-FU, mitomycin, and radiation versus just radiation alone. This study did show that there was increased local control as well as colostomy-free survival, which you will see in many of our anal cancer studies is a common endpoint. So in this study, the three-year disease-free survival was higher with the chemo-radiation group, 56% versus 38% in just the radiation group. It also showed that there was lower rates of colostomy using the chemo-radiation. At five years, it was 37% versus 47%. This study also showed that there was a benefit even in patients with early stage disease, so patients that are T1, N0, M0. In a later EORTC intergroup trial focused specifically on the high-risk tumors with T3 and 4 and 1 to 3 and found similar findings with increased complete response, increased colostomy-free survival. It is important to note that actually in both of these studies, there was no overall survival benefit with the addition of the chemo-RT. As with our other concurrent chemoradiation trials, capecitabine has been included as a potential option given every day of radiation other than the week one and week five of 5-FU. And depending on where you practice, they may be convenient. In this case, you know, patients are already going to have their pick for or port for mitomycin C. It will come down to your local preference and practice depending on which one you end up using. We're, and we're, we're very quickly going over this data here. There are a lot of studies that were negative that tried to improve upon this regimen and it's well summarized and up to date or your textbook of your choosing and we've included some of the citations in the show notes. What is an issue that is has been well studied and, and many of these trials have included as part of their protocols and have slowly adapted it into practice is the approach to patients with somewhat persistent disease. Especially in the follow-up ACT-2 trial, there was a lot of interest on if a patient has evidence of residual tumor after completion of treatment, how do we approach this? And it has been shown for anal cancer and with the nature of how radiation therapy works is that there can be continued response even if there's a persistent lesion noted after the initial treatment. We assessed response 8 to 12 weeks after the completion of chemo-RT with both the DRE as well as imaging with a CAT scan. In patients that appear to have not progressed but still have residual disease, it can take up to six months to see um, a response. So we typically allow up to six months to see if you can achieve a complete response. Yeah, and this, this follow-up would include serial imaging, repeat digital rectal exams, and oscopy. Guidelines suggest against biopsying early. The reason being is this is very friable tissue at the site of radiation and can lead to infections and bleeding. As long as the tumor doesn't appear to be growing on serial assessments, um, to let well enough be alone. If it, they do continue to persist at six months, then you would also biopsy at that time. If you do achieve a CR at six months, the standard surveillance protocol is a DRE anoscopy with inguinal lymph node palpation every three to six months for five years. We also do just annual imaging, CT, chest, abdomen, pelvis for three years after treatment. And if there is any evidence of progression of disease, then that would warrant a rebiopsy of the site. As with colon cancers, recurrences past five years are quite unlikely. And with the current modern approach to treatment, the estimated five-year colostomy-free survival ranges from about 65 to 86%, depending on the TNN stage. If there is evidence of persistent disease after six months, or if you develop a recurrence at any time point after your chemoradiation, that would be when we would have to do a salvage surgery, an APR, 
The good news is is that about 25 to 40% can still achieve long-term disease control even after the salvage surgery. Though obviously, um, you know, it does have impact on quality of life. There is a well-published distinction between residual disease and recurrent disease. With those that are residual not ever having a complete response, having worse long-term outcomes compared to those that have had a complete response and then recurred. The primary predictor of long-term survival after surgical resection is negative margins at the time of surgery. Given the rarity of this tumor and the fact that most recurrences occur locally and not distantly, we have quite limited data in the stage 4 metastatic setting, with really only one comparative trial and a lot of phase 2 trials showing response rates. The most common site of metastatic disease is the liver. The standard of care chemotherapy is carbotaxel, which is really extrapolated from other sites of squamous cell carcinoma. And this was studied in the INTERACT trial, which looked at carbotaxel versus cisplatin 5-FU, which is another chemotherapy that we tend to use for squamous cell carcinomas of other sites. This study looked at 91 patients, all with metastatic anal squamous cell carcinoma. The primary endpoint was overall response rate, which was similar in both groups 59% with the carbotaxel versus 57% with cisplatin 5-FU. Although when you looked at overall survival and toxicity, the carbotaxel arm did better. So better overall survival, 20 months versus 12 months, and less serious adverse events. So this is why usually our first-line treatment for metastatic disease would be carbotaxel. Beyond first-line, there's really limited evidence to support one treatment over another. This is not a disease site that has had a significant biomarker based evidence. In treat- otherwise, patients who presented with de novo metastatic disease, you could also consider using 5-FU mitomycin. However, this is a fairly toxic regimen to be used in the metastatic space. There's plenty of options for single agent management using many of the other familiar chemotherapies that, are, that squamous cell carcinomas are sensitive to. There has also been consideration of immunotherapy in this space. There's some small phase two studies looking at single agent nivolumab as well as pembrolizumab in refractory uh, patients or patients with refractory metastatic squamous cell carcinoma. So this can be an option for later line. Hopefully this was a helpful short discussion on anal squamous cell carcinoma, uh, certainly a space that can benefit from some additional research and evidence, both in the metastatic setting, but also in the localized setting. I mean, we, we have good five-year overall survival, but we're still using a regimen based off of something published in 1978. And I, w- I would think that we could do come up with something better in the meantime. And, you know, given the potential benefits for immune therapy and lots of interest in combining that with radiation, this is certainly an area that could benefit from some additional research with some difficulties given the limited number of patients and hopefully reducing rates of HPV in the population. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely one of the shorter chapters in the ASCO SEP, if any of you guys are reading that. Which makes for a good, nice, brief discussion, but yes, definitely more research is needed. So on that note, we're going to end our GI talks, and we'll jump into the world of breast cancer, which, as opposed to this, has an enormous amount of information. So it should be exciting. The next two episodes will be have been pre-recorded uh, back when we were in Studio 1.0. So I do apologize. The audio quality will decline a little bit for a couple episodes as the Ryans welcome the newest Ryan to the family, which will keep us from recording for the next month or so. But hopefully we'll be able to keep on pace and keep episodes coming out for those of you who have found this helpful. Yep. Thanks for listening. And as always, feel free to email us or send us a Twitter message with any feedback. Bye for now. Bye.
For more information, follow us on Twitter at TalkingTumors, or feel free to email us at TalkingAboutTumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he is the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking about tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures, and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.